You know, there's one remarkable invention that has covered a lot of ground. It's the 3D printer, and it's changing a lot of our lives. So now we can print all kinds of things, from hamburgers and other food to guns. But 3D printers are also revolutionizing healthcare as well. A once shuttered warehouse is now a state-of-the-art lab where new workers are mastering the 3D printing that has the potential to revolutionize the way we make almost everything. A Chinese man whose skull was severely injured in an accident has had his head rebuilt with the help of 3D printing technology. They're printing houses in China, they're printing catwalk fashion. You can print almost anything in almost any, any place in the world now. So in, in the medical area, the reason 3D printing is so interesting is because we can create anatomically perfect implants based on taking a medical scan data set of the patient. This is The Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. It seems like we're on the cusp of a world where anything could go from a simple idea to reality in just a matter of months. The invention of 3D printers has turned ideas that were previously science fiction into real possibilities. And one of the areas that's seeing a rapid expansion is their use in medicine and surgery. Today on the program, I'm speaking with Associate Professor Mia Woodruff from the Queensland University of Technology. She's using 3D printers to create a world where we can repair injured bones or even organs with the real thing using a method called biofabrication. Okay, so biofabrication is the 3D printing of biologically relevant tissue substitutes. So we're using this technique of 3D printing to create three-dimensional objects that fit into a patient, but we're not using just bog-standard plastics or metals or ceramics were actually infusing into those materials patient cells, growth factors, and different types of um, biological substances to make it a tissue-relevant substitute. Of course, we've been using different materials in the body for decades, from titanium joints to silicon breast implants. But 3D printing opens up whole new avenues. So if you go all the way back to the sort of the history of biomaterials and how they were established, way back in the World War when pilots were flying sort of during, their, during the war when they were flying and they crash landed, a lot of them had shards of the PMMA, so polymethyl methacrylate, screens of their planes embedded in their eyes. And what happened was doctors were astonished. They were wondering why they had these materials embedded in their eyes that weren't creating an inflammation reaction. So they started to realize that certain materials are biocompatible, which means that when they enter the human body, they don't really upset the balance of the, of the human body very much. So this is how biomaterials sort of evolved over time. So this historical evidence of way back in Egyptian times, they would use sort of wooden teeth, um, different types of metal implants. But what, as biomaterial scientists, what we've realized over, over time is that we can start to artificially create different types of implantable materials based on nature. So based on mimicking the collagen in the body, based on mimicking the hydroxyapatite in the bone. And we can create artificial 
um, artificial materials that are actually biocompatible with the body. We've always been able to develop these biomaterials for decades and decades, but forming them into the right shape to implant has been very difficult. But now 3D printing, we, we build our own printers to process these materials and we can create patient-ready scaffolds that are sterile, that are biocompatible, that can have the cells put in there from the patients. And that's the kind of work that we're doing here at QUT, and that's biofabrication. You're probably wondering, how does this process actually work? And is it anything like using my printer at home? One of the easiest approaches and one that we've used for many years is we print a very porous scaffold, so a 3D framework, just like a, exactly like a scaffolding system you would see on a building site. And then we can add separately, or in the actual operating theatre, we can add the cells from the patient in situ. So we can put them into like a gel-like watery substance and inject them into that defect site. But one approach that we're looking at now and that we've been developing as well for many years is to include these cells into the actual printing process. So you'd have a multi-nozzle printing system. You'd be able to have one section which was printing a polymer that degraded at a certain rate based on whether you're healing bone or cartilage or tissue. And then you'd have another section where you would put a sterile syringe full of, for example, liposuction aspirate from the patient or bone marrow aspirate, which has got the patient's own cells in there, or also potentially stem cells that you've taken out of the patient and expanded for several weeks. Because stem cells have this amazing um, regeneration capacity and everybody knows this. It's a logistical difficulty having the extra culture time, but you can add these cells back into the scaffold after you've taken them out of the patient after a couple of weeks of culture. So it's a contemporary process you print your scaffold and you can put your cells in at the same time to make these 3d constructs one of the practical applications that dr woodruff has been working on is creating implantable breast scaffolds that can be used for women who've had a mastectomy what would happen here is you would take a scan of the patient prior to the operation, so when prior to having the breast removed, and you get an anatomically precise three-dimensional image of what they look like. And then after the mastectomy, we can start to print biologically relevant um, scaffolds or replacement breast tissue that can then be cultured in the laboratory using cells from that same patient. So during liposuction, we can extract fat cells from that patient. We can infuse these into this, these breast replacements. This is still very preclinical. It's certainly not um, as advanced as other techniques yet, but it's very pioneering research. And so after you've cultured this three-dimensional scaffold shape, so they're exactly the size of the patient, after several weeks or months, we can implant those back into the patient with the patient's own, own cells in there. And then the scaffold structure actually degrades, which means that the tissue starts to take on that three-dimensional structure. And eventually, that the intention is that it will basically just fill that defected tissue and it will be the perfect size and shape of the patient. The scaffold's disappeared and it's just got their tissue there. So yeah, it's, it's a big blue sky project. It's an incredibly relevant one and it's going to hopefully revolutionize some of the breast tissue and sort of get rid of the need for silicone implants or for women to not have an option. So it's incredible research. One of the challenges is creating synthetic materials that can mimic different structures in the body, all the way from very hard and rigid bone to the softer and more pliable cartilage. One synthetic material that's showing a lot of promise are hydrogels. So hydrogels are highly hydrated 
gel, jelly-like substances that can be extruded very easily. And what we can do with those substances is we can build them into three-dimensional objects and we can put the patient's chondrocytes or cartilage cells into that substance and start to look at if we're compressing that gel, what kind of proteins are being expressed? Is it the same kind of protein that would be present in the actual native cartilage? Um, and then combining that with some of my bone research, we can start to look at osteochondral defects, so osteo and chondral bone and cartilage so for example osteoarthritis and people often have issues in the knee where they've got a, a bit of bone and a bit of cartilage missing and we need to make dual phasic scaffolds but cartilage is this difficult substance to regenerate because it doesn't have a nerve supply and it doesn't have blood vessels bone does have a nerve supply and it does have blood vessels so creating an implant that half of it's got to be anti and blood and anti-nerve and the other half's got to promote that is quite complicated so the engineering is really really important there. Today more than 100,000 people in the U.S. are waiting for an organ donation. You probably know someone or know someone who knows someone on that list. At this very minute, in hospital wards and dialysis clinics around Australia, 1,583 Australians are on the waiting list for organ donation. But donor rates remain disappointingly low, despite research saying Australia is one of the best funded countries in the world for organ donation. The shortage of organs available for transplant is a problem right across the world. But could 3D printing be the answer to that problem? by creating organs without the need for a donor. So things like hearts are very, very complicated, but perhaps the future isn't to be able to create or print a human beating heart. Perhaps the future of heart transplants is to have a pump that's implanted that's made out of metal with various 3D printed components, but still is a metallic pump system, much like an engine, which I know is, is actually going on. Some of the work that's being done, um, groups such as um, Daniel Timms, who was an ex QUT graduate, he's formed a company that's looking at creating these these heart pumps and it's, it's absolutely amazing. So maybe creating an organic heart is, is really not the way we're going. Livers, you would need, you need that kind of substance but the heart's main feature is it's got to beat it's got to pump that blood around the body so potentially the heart focusing on 3d printing a heart to be an actual tissue substance is not what we want to be looking at unfortunately however the idea that we'll be printing whole organs is probably a pipe dream we can print cells and those cells will turn into tissue if you give them the right signals but to actually print like people imagine printing like a, a plastic robot, to print an actual tissue in that sense is at the moment not feasible. But we can print cells into the right shape and give them the right signals to turn into the right tissue. But that happens over weeks to months. It doesn't happen on the spot. And there are some parts of the human body that are especially hard to repair. Nerves are really difficult to heal, so that's that's definitely an area that needs a lot more a lot more research. Um, and also, we haven't really worked very much on on the brain, but certainly the sort of tissues. There's an, there's groups all over the world and all over the country in Australia who are working on liver and they're working on heart. And people can start to look at actually building beating heart tissue. Now, printing an entire three-dimensional heart in a machine is, is never going to happen, but what we can do is we can create a scaffold structure and we can start to put those cardiomyocytes 
using these printing technology into the right parts of the scaffold, start to culture it in a bioreactor and then hopefully eventually be able to implant that. So that's sort of the future of heart transplants. Associate Professor Woodruff was kind enough to take me on a bit of a tour of her lab. And some of the things that they were printing were not only medically useful, some were tasty. This is a chocolate printer. So we, we also look at printing different types of substances. Chocolate's not that indifferent to hydrogels. So building a printer that can print chocolate is actually a really great learning curve for our engineers because that chocolate is almost identical in viscosity to the type of hydrogels that they're using to put cells in. Okay, on to the more medically relevant work. One exciting development is helping children with a congenital defect get involved in the production of their own prosthesis. So we've got a fantastic project that we've just started running with a local charity called Hear and Say. And the children who are part of Hear and Say, some of them suffer from a condition called microtia. So their outer ear is not formed properly after birth. So we're looking at ways to make low-cost, rapid ear prosthesis for these children where we can print with flexible materials that have got the right skin tone in there and that we can actually magnetically or using temporary glue attached to those children. And the most fun part of the project is eventually in a few months' time when we can print these materials, we can scan the child, take a three-dimensional map of what their, their, their other ear looks like or their parent's ear and ultimately um, we will have a printer on the premises at Hear and Say where the children could start to be involved in the process of 3D printing. So they'll see their ear model, they'll be able to see it being printed as well. So they'll have a great connection with their new prosthesis. So this is a project that we're so excited about. The viability of an implant is also determined by how closely it matches the physical size of the defect or injury that it's trying to address. And that's why the quality of the scan matters so much. So we have really advanced imaging and scanning um, expertise in the group. So we can either use medical um, magnetic resonance imaging, so a hospital scan, if someone injures their head, they go into hospital, they have CT scan or MRI scan, we can take that scan data set and using a, there's a lot of steps in between, it's not quite as straightforward as taking that data set and printing it, but we can have coders working on that, those um, medical scans and we can get them to talk to our 3D printers that we custom build and we can get them to create the exact size and shape of scaffold to fit into that defected bone. High-end scanning equipment is likely going to remain the gold standard. But in the future, a scan done on your phone might help determine whether someone lives or dies after a traumatic event. You can actually use an iPhone to do this. So this skull here, I had 15-year-old school children with me for one week. And on day one, we taught them to take photographs of this skull. On day two, they created 3D models. And on day three, they printed these scaffolds. This is one that a, a high school child printed. Of course, when we do this for actual um, patients, we can't just scan their skull with a big hole missing in it because there's hair in the way and tissue in the way. So you have to have them scanned with an MRI in a hospital or with a CT scanner in a hospital. But it shows you that the technology is enabling us to make huge progress much faster than we could 10 years ago. So an iPhone in India might be the difference between life and death if someone can scan someone on the roadside, send that via an iMessage to the hospital in advance of the patient arriving. All they need is a 3D printer in that hospital. Can I rush off to the shops and buy a 3D printer to start printing my own scaffolds for future surgeries? Maybe not. But what is it that delineates Associate Professor Woodruff's printers from those on the open market? 
With the ones you buy in the shops, you're restricted by their specific type of, I guess, instructions that you use, so you can't adapt them. You also can't use a 3D printer that you buy in a shop to print different types of, of um, skin and bone because they're not sterile. They're also not FDA approved, so the materials you put in are just the kind of materials that you would make keyboards from, so ABS, PLA, whereas the materials we use in our printers are they're sterile and they're also FDA approved. So they're much, much higher cost, of course, because they're going to be implanted into you. And the other thing that's needed is a team of professionals with a variety of different skills and backgrounds so that we can take these initial ideas through to clinical practice. So I'm so lucky here at QUT because I have this amazing team. I've got biologists, physicists, mathematicians, coders, mechatronic students. I work with clinicians, veterinary surgeons. We have material scientists, engineers, electrical and medical. And really, if you don't have all of those people working on a problem, you can't possibly get it to the next level to translate that. So we're this multidisciplinary collaborative group. And really, that skill and expertise is, is, all that, is what's required to get these to this stage. Associate Professor Woodruff and her team have big dreams for the future of 3D printing. She envisages a future where the 3D printer is an integral part of the operating room. Our vision is a hospital of the future, which is effectively in the same way that you have office printers and every day you print your documents. We want to have a hospital which every hospital in the world, our hospital of the future, will have 3D printers in the operating theatre. So the patient will go in, the scan data set, using various coding technologies will be there ready for them as soon as they're put under the anesthesia. Printing on the spot a different type of polymer for different types of tissue, fast degrading for bone, slow degrading for skin, different types of cells depending on the tissue you're looking at, and different types of growth factors to stimulate different tissues being formed. Literally, press button here, bone cartilage, size of defect, feed in the scan, print it on the spot, implant it in a sterile manner. Thank you for listening to the Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher. And please leave a comment or review. We'd love to hear from you.